Hello! Welcome to the final episode of This Animal Life, at least for this season. I couldn't end on a higher note because I'm devoting this special episode to all my fellow wolf lovers. Today you'll find out why humans are more like wolves than any other creature, why anthropomorphism can be accurate and necessary, and what our astonishing similarities to wolves teach us about our better nature, and why we're wise to show mercy in this animal life. thrilled today to be speaking to Rick McIntyre. He's the acclaimed author of the award-winning Alpha Wolves of Yellowstone book series, which includes The Rise of Wolf 8, The Reign of Wolf 21, and The Redemption of Wolf 302, which just came out this fall. Uh, McIntyre is currently at work on a fourth book in the series about Yellowstone's female alphas, including the famous Wolf 06? 06? We, we call her the 06 female. She's the 06 female. Yeah. Hi, yeah. Rick. Thank you so much for being here. Sure. Happy to do it. <laughs> yeah, we just experienced some cooperative problem solving, didn't we? With a, with a sound. It didn't work. <laughs> this is good enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this week I read The Redemption of Wolf 302, and I was noticing mm-hmm. that there's a narrative arc Um a very moving narrative arc uh, that kind of follows also the evolution of your regard for Wolf 302. Uh-huh. Yes. Because he uh-huh. starts off as this deadbeat and, and he's a coward <laughs> and a thief and <laughs> a kind of a rascalian, right? Uh, that, yeah. that all uh-huh. the girls love. And then, um, yeah. uh-huh. but he eventually becomes a wolf that you count. Uh, at the end, you actually say uh, the pantheon of great alpha wolves. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah. it's a very dramatic arc. I thought uh, you, you describe in so much detail their every interaction. And uh, it's kind of mind boggling to think that you are actually not watching them from nearby. So I wondered as we begin, if you could give us uh, some understanding of how it is that you're observing these wolves without in, in any way your presence impacting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good way to start off. So um, for listeners that um, might not be familiar with my books, um, I have been working uh, and living here in the Yellowstone area since 1994. Wolves used to be a native animal in the park, but the early rangers, like everyone else in the country, thought that they were no good. So it was actually park rangers that exterminated the native wolf population in Yellowstone National Park. It took a long time to figure out, first of all, what a huge mistake that was, and then secondly, how to rectify it. So uh, just briefly to summarize or explain that, in 1995, the Park Service brought in wolves from Canada for a reintroduction project. So I was here from a little bit before the beginning and then through right now, and we're almost at the 27th year anniversary of the reintroduction. Wow. So to answer your your question, most of where I work in Yellowstone is open country, high elevation open country without trees. 
we have one road that goes through it. It goes roughly east and west. So a normal day for me is I get up way before sunrise, go out into the park, and then try to find the walls. When we do find them, an average distance might be anywhere from a quarter mile to several miles. I have a high-powered spotting scope that goes up to 60 magnification. So the normal thing for me is I use the spotting scope to try to find the walls, and then once we found them to monitor the behavior. And the main pack that we watch right now is the Junction Butte pack. Oh. Recent sightings, there have been about 14 or 15. That includes, let's see, six pups and the rest are adults. Roughly half of our wolves are black and the other half are gray. Some have radio collars, some don't. So the pups are easy to tell from the adults. The, the black ones are easy to tell from the gray ones. <laughs> and some of them have very distinct personalities. So you try to um, identify the individuals and then whenever a particular wolf or several of them are doing something that's interesting, then you know who it is and, and what they're doing. So getting back to 302, he was very distinctive in a lot of ways. Uh, one of which was by human standards, he was drop dead gorgeous and, and probably by wolf standards too. So he came on the scene when he was, um, oh, let's say maybe about two and a half years old. So he was fully grown. He had a jet black coat and he just had this charisma. Even if you were watching him from a mile away, it was very easy to, to see that he had something. So, what, what did he look like? Um, <laughs> I mean, when, when he was being charismatic, like, how was his body uh -huh. language? Yeah, well, um, he was probably at that time about 115 pounds. So think of a, a really huge jet black wolf, a, a male um, that had a, a beautiful black coat that just had an air about him that um, it was like, hey, look at me. I'm a big deal. here." <laughs> and uh, we certainly noticed the effect that he had on the uh, female wolves. And uh, this was the Druid Peak Pack, the alpha male in that pack was uh, uh, our most famous alpha male, number 21. He was our greatest undefeated, uh, undisputed heavyweight champion that never lost a fight. And he was the epitome of male responsibility and dependability. And your last book was about him, right? That's right. Yeah. The second book. Yeah. So um, f uh, for listeners in, whatever their life experience has been, you know, just think of um, the man in their life that they, they uh, regard as the most reliable and, and dependable and trustworthy person. Hopefully that's, it's their, their husband, their father, you know, whatever. That was 21. So the complication was that 21 had a lot of daughters and they were, in wolf years, the equivalent in, in human years of teenagers. And the mating season was just about to begin. So guess what happened when 302 arrived in 21's territory and all of his teenage daughters took one look at this Romeo and uh, he stole their hearts instantly. He was like a rock star. Yeah, but whatever movie star a person wants to pick as the epitome of male beauty, DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, whatever, 
multiply that by 10. And that was wow. too. And he knew it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, he would stroll into the territory and they, the females just flocked to him. 21 had a very good sense of judgment. So he immediately analyzed this newcomer and put him down in the category of no good for his daughters. So other other wolves will come and he would not necessarily yes. react mm-hmm. this way. He reacted that way to 302. The way that I would say it is uh, it was the most extreme reaction I've ever seen. Uh, really? Have. Yeah, yeah. No so he, he knew that this... Yeah, that this was no good for his daughters, and, and he was right. So he would chase 302, 302 would run away, and he would catch 302, and he would pin him on the ground, and he would bite him. And at that moment, he had the, the full total ability to kill this guy. Let's pause here and point out for anyone who doesn't know that they do kill each other. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, that's not uncommon. That's right. Yes. Um, just like people kill each other, uh, just like many human fathers would like to kill the bad boyfriend, too. So um, but um, I had known 21 for years. And one of the other defining characteristics of his life story was that despite his ability to win any fight that he got in, he had actually never killed another wolf. That he had always let a defeated opponent go, always. He had learned that from the wolf that raised him, his adopted father. So he caught 302, beat him up, uh, had him at his mercy. And then that instinct kicked in that as far as 21 had in his experience growing up, you win the fight and let the guy go. And that's supposed to be the end of the problem. The guy will Show mercy. come back. Yeah, um, you taught him a lesson. Well, 302 was a really smart wolf, and he realized that he could take advantage of that. Wow. It's kind of like uh, in Batman movies, uh, the, the Joker knows that Batman, okay, he's going to catch me, but <laughs> he's not going to kill me. So I'll come back in the next movie or the next comic book. <laughs> so 302 figured that out. So he kept on coming back. And um, kept on getting a lot of 21's daughters pregnant. And then uh, at the end of the mating season, uh, 302 kind of lost interest in those females. He had a short attention span. So we went back to his his family. And that's not normal, right? Usually when a male mates, the male stays around to raise the pups. Yes. What, what would be way more normal would be for um, a, a suitor like 302 to draw off one or two young females from a pack like 20s ones, and then find a vacant territory, start their own pack, raise the pups, um, et cetera. So he just went home and lived with his parents again. Did they not want to go with him or did he decide he didn't want the responsibility? Can you tell? Well, there was an incident that um, finally showed the females that, um, 302 maybe wasn't the best choice for them to settle down with. And that was um, a particular case where a rival pack came on the scene. They charged toward 302 and several of his girlfriends, and he ran away (gasps) to save himself. So they didn't feel safe with him. Exactly. 
So they had grown up with 21 as their alpha male, their own father. And they had seen 21, the epitome of wolf masculinity, repeatedly risk his life to protect his family. He would fight anybody. He would fight five wolves if he needed to, to protect his family. So they finally began to see the reality of what a relationship with 302 would be like and uh, made the right decision that they went home. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if they actually apologized to their father, but uh, <laughs> uh, they, they went back home. So, uh, but he came back the next year, uh, 302. And um, by the way, I, I should mention that um, that first year, we know through DNA testing that 21, in addition to raising to the, the pups that he himself sired, he raised at least five pups that had been sired by 302. Oh, so wow. he had extra work that year, thanks to 302. In your book, you say that maybe 302 was born with a kind of slacker temperament. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, but and you compared him to the dude in the Big Lebowski. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, this very charming image you set up. I, well, let me back up a second because you, you you talked about this road that goes east to west, and you drive out yeah. uh, very uh -huh. early in the morning, and you set up your gear, uh -huh. and it's wide yeah. open land, no trees, which is why you can uh -huh. see them from so far off. Do you stay on the uh -huh. road when you set up, or do you go snowshoeing in, carrying your stuff? It varies. So in some cases, yes, you can just pull over by the side of the road and watch them. And that's other how people cases, end up joining you, right? If they're, they're visiting yes, the sure. park yeah. and you'll, you'll let yeah. them look through the yeah. scope. Yeah. yeah, I feel it's very important to share with people um, and help them see the wolves have an experience. In, in some cases, um, the wolves might go over a, a ridge or down into a valley. So you would, um, it's very hilly where, where I work. So then I would climb up on a ridge. I, I would not uh, move closer to the walls, but I would find a, a higher spot, maybe on the opposite side of the road, go up there where I can see them. Okay. So uh, there was one time when you were watching 302 and you had other people with you and um, mm -hmm. 302 was sleeping on a slope, right? He had, yes. Uh -huh. And, and he started sliding. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it, th things would happen to 302 that would happen to no other wolf. So what happened he was, it, when he started was, sliding? What did he do? Well, I, th I think he was sleeping, first of all. So he started to wake up, realizing he was sliding down. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wasn't the most coordinated wolf in the world. No. But I mean, it was like watching a movie comedy with, you know, slapstick humor. Um there were things that happened to 302 that would never happen to anybody else. He just was so distinctive, but he had that um, good looking thing going for him. And uh, what was really funny for me was uh, you know, oftentimes I'd be with 10 people, 20 people, something like that. And um, they all wanted to see 302 and I would tell them some of the stories like, you know, we had just discussed and I, I found very consistently I would get a lot of pushback from people. Um, they would say, oh, I don't think it's fair for you to talk about him that way. He didn't really mean to do that. He, he meant well. And I, I hope I don't get into trouble by saying this. You, you give me your judgment. But 
it was always women that would exonerate him, never men. So okay. they would always uh, find some kind of excuse for, you know, no matter how badly he, he messed up a situation. So what's up with that? Because he was lovable. I, I don't know. A maternal? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Um, well, I'm thinking people get this, get a pass for being good looking too. Yeah. You know, uh -huh. One woman said to me, I, cause I, I asked her, I, I don't understand this response. And she said, well, it's like when we were back in high school, you know, all the girls had a crush on the bad boy that, that came in on the motorcycle and leather jacket and, you know, was probably doomed to going to prison or something. <laughs> they liked the bad boy. So yeah, yeah, that bad boy aspect. What was the Henry Winkler character? Like oh yeah, Fonzie. Yeah. Fonzie. Fonzie. He's like the Fonzie. <laughs> he's, he's this lovable bad boy, you know, with a good heart. <laughs> Sounds like yeah. he's better looking uh -huh. than Henry Winkler. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. The other theory we came up with was maybe when um, 302 was a pup, uh, maybe his mother accidentally dropped him on his head, and that, oh. that would explain his behavior too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, his behavior and, and, and the way you categorize it is really interesting to me. And because sometimes you talk about temperament, like the slacker temperament. Yes, uh -huh. And later yeah, on, uh -huh. uh, near the end of the book, you notice that one of his sons that happened to, in interestingly enough, look a lot like him, was also yeah. independent. So there's the slacker yes, thing, uh -huh. but then that can be uh -huh. on the maybe a more positive, more um, noble side. That could be the lone yeah, wolf, uh -huh. this independence. Yeah. Um, and then like uh, other times you, you also talked maybe right around the same time you were talking about the, uh, that he's like the dude in the big Lebowski, which also is a lovable character, you know, and, yes, and there yeah. do well that uh -huh. you just can't yeah. get mad at. Um, yes. But, that 302 was he was a mixed bag even early on because he showed a novelty seeking behavior that you found that yeah, you admired uh -huh. uh, that he had yes, a kind uh -huh. of uh, willingness to take other kinds of risks and he was uh -huh. very clever you gave me yes, some, uh -huh. or me you gave the, the reader some examples of um of really clever problem solving that he showed. Yes, uh, one of the problems that wolves have is um, when they try to cross the road, uh, people will see them moving toward the road and folks will actually speed up to get to that section of the road to see them closer. So um, unintentionally, they're not realizing it, but they're blocking the walls. And so um, I, I later in his life saw 302 pioneer this um, technique where he found uh, a, a very small bridge where a creek flowed under the road. So he would uh, take that shortcut under the road, then he didn't have to deal with that problem. So he was smarter than the average wolf, just like Yogi Bear was smarter than the average bear. <laughs> I wonder, so he had this combination of, of intelligence, of cleverness, but then uh, all these faults in his life too. And uh, probably the strangest one, can, can I talk about that? Sure. The strangest? Uh, yes, yeah. do. So as an adult, after years of hunting elk and eating elk, that's what we'll specialize in here. That's their main prey. He developed a phobia about eating elk. So out of nowhere, I saw the pack. They had killed a, a bull elk with big antlers. And all the adults and even the, the pups were feeding at the carcass. 
and 21 was, excuse me, uh, 302 was standing off to the side. And he looked like he was afraid of approaching the carcass. He was hungry, but he was afraid of it. And I, I couldn't really understand it, except that I remember seeing years earlier, 21 was feeding in a similar carcass. He was, let's say, feeding on the right side of the head. A wolf on the left side was trying to tear off a piece of meat. He pulled it off, but one of the antlers kind of ricocheted in the other direction and poked 21 in the face. Well, 21 understood what happened and just continued feeding, but I think maybe that's what happened to 302. He got poked in the face by an antler. And so that seemed to explain he, he was hungry, but he was too afraid to approach it. So he saw a pup feed and then walk off. And he ran over to the pup and begged for a feeding. Now, that's something that a pup is supposed to do to an adult. Yes. And the adult will bring yes. up meat that it's, it's been eaten. It's called regurgitation. So 21 licked the face of the pup and actually got this little tiny pup to regurgitate his elk meat to 302 so he wouldn't have to risk getting poked in the face at the uh, carcass. What a low down, no good wolf. He stole <laughs> candy from a baby. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Exactly. But I have to say that that may have been the turning point for him. So really? when I reviewed all my, yeah, when I reviewed all my field notes of um, 302's life, I saw when I went back to that exact incident, that was the beginning of the change, the big change in 302's life. Like he hated himself. He hit bottom and said, I got to make the change. Hit bottom. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. So he resumed hunting with the pack. Uh, that included uh, chasing and, and helping the pack pull down big bull elk. So he overcame that phobia. And then it wasn't too long after that, that um, he was now an old wolf. The, the average lifespan of a wolf in Yellowstone is only about five years. I think he was about eight years old at that wow. time. His nephew, by the way, was the leader of the pack, the alpha male, with 302 being number two. And that suited him because it, he had no responsibility. So here's what happened. And it was an especially fascinating thing. So there were five male yearlings in the pack. And they were all really big guys. And they were, they were drawn to 302. There was something about 302 that they liked as well. His, that would be his, their uncle. So Uncle 302 and his five nephews took off late one year, maybe a month or so before the February mating season. And uh, to condense a lot of details, I'll, I'll sum it up by saying this. Very quickly, we saw that they had linked up with a number of sisters from a neighboring pack. Now, 302 being the oldest male by default, he was technically the alpha male. And then one of the sisters that joined his group, um, she became the alpha female. So that group of 302 is five nephews, and it worked out in the end to being three sisters. They formed a new pack called the, the Blacktail Pack. And one of the, the, the most fascinating aspects of 302's life story is that of all places 
for him to settle down in. He picked the place where he had grown up. That's mm -hmm. where he was born, where his parents raised him. Now, his original pack no longer existed. So that was a vacant territory and 302 knew that. So when he started his new pack, he essentially, it was a homecoming for 302. A different way of talking about that is if we bring in a, a, a biblical story to it, it was the prodigal son returning home. So his father um, was like 21, the epitome of male responsibility. And of all of his father's sons to come back and rejuvenate the uh, genetic line that his parents started, for it to be that one son, 302, the most irresponsible of their sons. It was just, just this incredible story. And uh, from then on, 302 was a, a model alpha male, a, a model uh, father. And um, it was just a 180 degree turnaround in his life story. So it wasn't necessarily that, that it was his temperament. Because, well, I don't know. Can you override your temperament? Can you, can you change who you essentially are? Well, it's a fascinating question, especially the way that you put it. And I, of course, have thought about this a lot. A lot of people ask me a similar question to that. And I, I think a possible comparison I can cite that will at least, it's an intriguing thing to consider, is how often you'll have uh, a famous movie star, uh, particularly one that's very handsome, that had a whole lifetime of relationships with one woman after another. Let's just say someone like George Clooney. And then suddenly as a middle-aged guy, yeah, he finds the right woman. I, I listened to an interview with him recently yeah. and apparently he's the most happily married guy in the world. And he loves his life with, it, with his wife. And um, I, that can happen to a human being, and I guess it can happen to a wolf like 302. So uh, he just totally changed. As you speak, the, the times make the man, you know, he ended up with this power. He, maybe he wasn't able to feed himself as a loner so, so well anymore because he was eight years old, mm -hmm. you said, nine years old. Um, mm -hmm. So he was going to have to learn to cooperate. And yeah. then he ends mm -hmm. up, because mm -hmm. of his age, the other wolves regard him with some respect. Yes. And he's mm -hmm. so smart, yes. uh -huh. you know, and, and he went back yeah. to mm -hmm. a, a landscape that he knew. So he yes, also had uh -huh. this repository uh -huh. of knowledge. So he would be, in a sense, wiser yes, uh -huh. in many ways. Um, yes. So, uh -huh. and then there were, I, I think he ended up with 11 pups. At the, that, was it that first summer? He ended up caring I for. I don't think it was quite that many, but it was a lot. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. At one point, yeah. he, I, I thought, wow, here he is staying behind and taking care of 11 puppies. Like, how, yes. did, he, mm -hmm. how did he succumb to that? And, and maybe it was just sheer necessity because these are the times and these are the responsibilities that were placed upon him because of circumstances. Well, there's another 302 story that, that illustrates that, that that happened exactly with the pups. So it was a hot summer day. And um, because he still had a somewhat heavy coat, all he wanted to do was to cool off. So he was taking his afternoon nap in this wet marshy area that had real tall willow bushes in it so he could rest in the shade and in a nice cool spot. 
And there were actually two mother wolves that, that year. One of them had lost the pups. And so she was frantically trying to find their scent trail. She was howling for them. And the, uh, she just couldn't find where the pups were. So she was getting stressed out. She was getting frantic. So she ran over to where 302 was and got him up. And I don't know how she conveyed to 302 what the problem was, but 302 just kind of shook himself off. And even though it was still a hot day and he, he didn't really want to work, he actually took off in pretty much a straight line and um, went, and I was watching from a high hill so I could see the whole thing. And he went exactly to where the pups were hiding. As if he and knew he rounded them up. Yeah, he rounded them up, brought them back. But he had a little bit of a problem. He still had to resolve. He still needed to take his afternoon nap in the shade of the, of the bushes. So he had noticed that one of the younger adult males was sleeping near his secret spot. So he brought the pups over to the other male. And while the pups were greeting that guy, 21 turned around, snuck away, hid in his bush, and he took the, he resumed his nap. <laughs> so it was a little bit of the old 302 mixed in with the, the new 302. But in thinking about that story, uh, and maybe you've kind of figured it out yourself, what was so clever about it was you think that 302, he had grown up in that exact territory. He had been a pup there. So he knew all the secret places where pups would go and play and hide from the adults and stuff like that. So he just used that knowledge. He went right there, did that, came back, got rid of the pups, and then was sound asleep a couple of minutes later. So I, I thought that was a great example of his using his experience and his intelligence. And then at the very end, there was the twist to what he did to <laughs> dump the pups out at the other guy. <laughs> So there's a little bit of the old 302 still in. It's a little selfish. Yes. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah. But he had become useful. Yes. Uh -huh. So it was a mixture of responsibility and um, let's just, well, we'll, we'll use a positive term, cleverness. Yeah. Uh, you mm -hmm. talked about leadership. At, at one point you were defining leadership. Um, you were talking about Wolf 480 and you said that, um, you, you define leadership as taking a decisive action to defend others at great risk to oneself. Um, and, and then that becomes inspiring to the others. And they do likewise when they see the leader risking himself or herself. Um, you yes. talked about mm -hmm. George Lucas, how on a set, somebody threw a cigarette. And um, instead of, it, which I think it was a fire hazard or something at that place. Um, yeah, yeah uh, let me explain. I can do that. Yeah. Quickly. Oh, yeah. Do so, that. It's um, a good that story. Sure. Um, before Yellowstone, I was a park ranger in Death Valley National Park. And that's a place where a lot of movies have been shot over the years, especially Westerns. And I happened to be the ranger that um, oversaw the um, part of the filming of Return of the Jedi. Uh, George Lucas was there. The two robots were there. It was a fairly simple scene to, to film. So all I really had to do was to monitor the crew and make sure that they didn't break any of the park regulations. And what happened was one of the lower ranking persons on the crew, a man was smoking a cigarette. This was years ago. And I thought 
you know, there's a ch- maybe a chance when he's finished, he'll just throw the cigarette on the ground. That would be a very minor violation, but technically it was littering. Now, I actually had the power as a ranger to shut down the whole operation if they caused any problems. And I thought they've treated me well. They've treated the Park Service well. This is Star Wars. It's George Lucas. So if he throws it on the ground, what I'm going to do is just I'll walk over there. I'll pick it up the cigarette. I'll put it in my pocket. I'll just leave it at that. I I won't make a big deal out of it. I tell the story that way because when he did throw it on the ground, I started to move right away toward that spot. But I, I saw that someone was faster than I was. He must have been watching the same thing. So another guy rushed over, picked up the cigarette and did exactly what I was going to do, put it in his pocket. And that was George Lucas. So in the book, I use that as an example of leadership in the sense that everybody else in the crew saw what he did. And I think everyone else on that crew, like I was, was very impressed with how he handled that. Because a different person with that authority would have yelled at the crew guy, would have said, we could have got kicked out of here. I'm going to fire you. I'll make sure you never work in Hollywood again. He didn't do that. What he did was to set an example. And that had a a tremendous impact on the crew. So to bring it back to the Wolves, 302's nephew, 480, who was the alpha male when they joined the Jewett Pack, he was like 21, um, the classic example of masculine responsibility. So 302 was exposed to those type of role models throughout his life, his own father, his nephew, and then also his, his uncle, 21. And my analysis of 302 is that finally, the, the role modeling of those three males in his life, the three most significant males in his life, um, finally it had a, a deep impact on him. And when he decided to change, I, I, my guess is that that's what he wanted to be like, his father, 21, and uh, his nephew, 480, and he was able to pull it off. What impresses me is if you had been the one to pick up the cigarette, nobody would have thought anything of it. They're like, you're just doing your job. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't have influenced them. It's because he was the highest ranking on the set. Exactly. And he lowered himself to do this small menial thing without punishing somebody or or shaming them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was maybe Mm -hmm. the fairness or the the grace, is that a a word to use, or the graciousness of him. And you had talked also about fairness. Um, You you uh, quoted Mark Beckoff quite a bit um, when you were talking about self-handicapping in which mm-hmm. a, a leader oh, yes, during yes, play, yes, a leader yes, behaves yes. like a weaker, younger, uh-huh. lower ranking wolf. And that, and during play, one of the things that the wolves are learning is uh, fairness by example. And you, you quoted uh, Beckoff saying it's the foundation of fairness and uh, it provides yes, insights. Uh-huh. And, and we uh-huh. do that with our own children. You know, uh-huh. you, you lay down on the floor and let a two-year-old beat you up, you know? And, um, yes. Uh-huh. And, and it, um, he's Beckoff sees it as the evolution of social morality 
when when someone of higher rank or, or greater strength or greater intelligence or whatever um, lowers themselves so that someone else can have the pleasure of winning and the play is extended because it's more pleasurable for everyone. So everyone gets to play longer. And then you say, oh, and, and that it extends into sharing meals. Uh, if a wolf has to stay behind and take care of pups, other wolves will bring that wolf food. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So because they see each other sharing responsibilities and making sacrifices and, and uh, not letting, I guess, pride and independence get and selfishness get in the way of uh, pleasure for others or even survival for others. So you had mentioned, based on your experience watching wolves, and you, you mentioned in this passage, uh, wolf eight, 21, 42, and 113, you would say that wolves who are the fairest and the most cooperative have the most allies and that those allies then treat them in a reciprocal manner. So when everyone saw George Lucas pick up the cigarette and maybe they were relieved for the person who flicked it on the ground because that they, they didn't all have to endure someone getting chewed out and in trouble. Mm -hmm. So this, mm -hmm. this gratitude and appreciation then extends to everybody or it affects everyone. And then they're more likely to pick up a cigarette that they see on the ground or, or even more. That's the reciprocal nature. Yes. Yeah. You explained that very well. And I, just to add a couple of things um, uh, for the folks listening, a couple of quick examples. So we, I talked about 21 being the undefeated, undisputed heavyweight champion, never lost a fight in his life. He was probably about 120 pounds, which is a big wall. And so you would see him get into a play session with one of his little pups who might have weighed 15 pounds. And um, 21 would pretend to be afraid of the pup. He would tuck his tail and run away. And the pup would have to chase the big guy because you know that would be fun for the pup. And 21 would run at about 10% of his potential speed. So the pup could keep up and he would wait until the pup lunged forward and, and nipped at one of 21's hind legs. And as soon as 21 would feel that, he would fall over on the ground, wow. the, the defeated prey animal that the, the big tough wolf had just pulled down. So the little pup would stand triumphantly. He had just defeated the heavyweight champion. Or if it was a wrestling match, it's essentially the same principle. He would wait until the pup grabbed the fur in one of his legs. And then if he just a little bit of a, a 21 he would just be standing there, would fall over on his back with his paws wiggling in the air that he had just lost the, the wrestling match. But think of how that would bond uh, a pup to their father, to the leader of the pack. And you know what a great experience that would be. And maybe they start to understand this principle that if you're interacting with other pack members and um, you happen to be bigger, stronger, faster, it's like you were saying a few moments ago, uh, you're going to have more fun, more play if you try to even things out. So I, this is just speculation, but if you're the biggest male pup in the litter, and it's easy for you to out-wrestle every other pup in every match, probably they're going to stop wanting to play with you because yes. what fun is it to lose all the time? So then you start to um, understand, well, gee, when I wrestled the alpha male or my father, he pretended to let me win. So maybe if I did that with my siblings, that would extend it. So I, I think that's how it works. And I I have a memory when I was young that 
you know, I understood that when I wrestled with my father, he would let me win. And I totally understood what he was doing and it made us closer. Yes. And then at some point, uh, maybe you start to resent it because you know you can do more. Explain that a little bit more. Because uh, at some point, say say you're playing a board game, say you're playing chess and you can tell your father oh, okay. is losing uh-huh. so that you can win. But at some point, you know, I you're see. capable yeah. uh-huh. of more challenge. And if your father sure. keeps uh-huh. throwing the game, then that's not fun uh-huh. for you because you're ready for more challenge. Likewise, if your father never throws the game, therefore you mm-hmm. can never catch up, you can never win, yeah. you'll, you'll stop mm-hmm. playing. But if you know that mm-hmm. other fathers let their sons win, you know, they, they, they find that, that just the right amount of challenge for their son yeah. or, or mm-hmm. you know, daughter, whoever, pup, um, mm-hmm. if they modulate how much they're, uh, what is the word, self-handicapping. If the self-handicap, mm-hmm. if they withhold the self-handicapping, then it's just mean. And like you said, nobody wants to yes, play with uh-huh. them, but yes. they may lose person who withholds the self-handicapping loses the respect and gratitude mm-hmm. of the rest of the, mm-hmm. the pack. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, as, and likewise, if they, if they throw it too easy, they will lose respect and gratitude. It mm-hmm. has to be just the right sure. mm-hmm. uh, modulation. Yeah, why don't we uh, take a moment to, to talk about something that's uh, very closely associated with this sure. um, uh, play aspect. And that would be something that you already alluded to. We'll talk about it in a little bit more detail. That um, 21's longtime mate was 42. And she was uh, especially brilliant at, at leadership and forming alliances. So she did favors for younger and lower ranking females in the family. Uh, At that time, 42's sister, 40 was the alpha female and she had a very aggressive and violent personality. And years later, when the two sisters finally had it out, the good sister versus the bad sister, what we think happened was that those allies, those female allies that 42 had made over the years they jumped into the fight between the two older sisters on their friend's side, on 42's side. And that enabled 42 to prevail in a fight that otherwise she, she would have lost and probably been killed. So it's good to have friends, it's good to have allies. And I, I quote a, a, another researcher, Brian Hare, a professor in one of the Southern universities who, um, who spoke about something related to that. And he's, he, he started by saying that there's a misunderstanding of the, of the phrase survival of the fittest, that that's usually interpreted to, to be fittest, meaning the strongest and the toughest individual in a group. But maybe a different way to define fittest is an individual that's the, the best at working with others, the best at making friendships, the best at having allies. And that was the gift that 42 had, whereas all the other females did not like 40 because she was so aggressive and so domineering. Well, yeah, I, let me just take Brian Hare and Vanessa Woods yes. have that book, um, Survival of the Friendliest. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and so uh-huh. there's plenty of evidence included in the book and elsewhere that 
those who survive and it's not necessarily the the, the big bully silverback gorilla yes mm-hmm. um yeah really really the females are going off behind the bushes which i, I have joked about with, with the one who writes poetry <laughs> <laughs> yeah i gotta ask you a question do you have sure. a sister i do yeah do you do you fight with her no no okay no but um i am I, I'm five and a half years older, so we probably didn't okay. compete. But okay. this, this um, I remember you telling me, or somewhere, uh, maybe one of the podcasts I heard you on an interview, um, this sister was was not, it, it, these weren't just fights. There was maybe something wrong with this sister, right? Yeah, that's, uh, this is in my second book, The, the, um, R- the Reign of Wolf 21. Yeah, she was probably psychotic. We think so you can that, have mad- um, madness in wolves, sociopathology. I, I wouldn't. I, I guess I'm not 100 percent comfortable with the word madness, but let's just say extreme selfishness, or, okay. you know, whatever equivalent word you might want to use. We think she was actually the um, role model for that character, um, Cersei in uh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> She's bloodthirsty or she would not hesitate to kill yeah. uh, another wolf. So she, so she drove out her own mother. She drove out one of her two sisters. And then worst of all, two years in a row, she killed all of 42's pups. So what could be worse than that in a wolf pack? Mm-hmm. And 21 was helpless because he had this um, rule in his life that he would never do anything to harm a female so he he didn't know right so it was backfiring yeah he didn't know how to deal with this and so he had to rely on 42 to figure it out and but that was her genius her ability to come up with a solution to um even for the grade 21 had had no idea how to deal with 40 um And that part of the story is so fascinating because despite all the bad blood between the two sisters, when the Alliance finally killed, well, technically they beat her up and let her go, but she died of her injuries. Oh, okay. So technically they, they, they injured her, but didn't kill her, but she did die of her wounds. So um, the conclusion to the story is uh, despite all that history between the two sisters, um, after 42 died, this is during the Denning season, I'm sorry, 40 died, 42 went over to his sister's den and for the rest of that year, raised her sister's pups along the ground side by side. So she put all that bad blood behind her. And then when she became the the alpha, that's that's exactly right. And, when she became the alpha female, that made life for 21 infinitely easier because um, he acknowledged that, um, like all males, that, that females run the show. It was fine that he was the alpha male, but he just worked for the real boss. So his life was simplified once 42 became the leader of the pack. All he had to do was to fulfill his two main responsibilities, which are easy for him, protect the family from rival wolves and feed the family. So he could do that in his sleep. But 
to make all the big decisions, where to den, where to move the pups, um, uh, where to go here, where to go there. He relied on 42 to make all those decisions. So he had his area of responsibility and she was the overall leader of the pack. In military terms, she would be essentially the commanding officer. Okay. And he would be the executive officer in the sense that, okay, here's what we're going to do. I, I need you to do one, two, and three. Now, this is normal, right? I mean, wolf packs have been shown to be matriarchal. The, the alpha wolf is the female. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And it, it's, it's fascinating to get into that because um, for a long time, um, wolf biologists were nearly all male. And so we think now that there was a, uh, a male bias. Mm-hmm. The male researchers would watch a wolf pack and be so impressed with the size and the strength of the big alpha male they wouldn't really pay too much attention to what the alpha female was doing. <laughs> and she was actually the one that was really running the show. She was uh, the real power in the pack. Yeah. And um, so, and that's consistent in all the packs that I've seen. It's the alpha female. And um, one of the, 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 the smallest alpha females that we ever had, 926, boy, she was just a powerhouse um, when she needed to. So there was one time where uh, the three big males in the pack, including the alpha male, they had killed an elk um, and she came along. And as soon as she uh, approached the carcass, all those males, uh, they were pretty smart males because they just stepped away from the carcass (laughs) and let her eat whatever she wanted. Uh, she totally dominated those guys. You know, it's like you 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 looking through your telescope and you're you're watching a soap opera. I, I know there must be a lot of boring yeah, time uh-huh. and all that. You know, and you're you're uh, uh-huh. cherry picking for us the best stories. Sure. When we uh-huh. talk about um, this blind spot that the male researchers had, it makes you wonder, like, what uh-huh. what's your blind spot? But it and I was so struck. By uh, interviews that I heard with you, and uh, and even the title of the book, the redemption of, you know, it. it uh-huh. Where is the anthropomorphic? Like, what is the line? That's something that I wonder about quite a bit for myself because I'm I'm so empathetic, a, a character myself, just naturally, uh-huh. and so I have yeah. always, uh-huh. and I think a lot of people in, in my generation, you know, you, you saw so much of yourself in animals and then the adults would dismiss you if as being um silly uh uh-huh. too uh, sentimental you know you're just imagining things and yet something in me and in many other people said no i i think i think there is this overlap so in particular as i was mm-hmm. reading your book i, I did a, a little bit of digging it didn't take long to find some interesting and reassuring corroboration of this and it's because i've i've been so mm-hmm. liberated to hear you speak like this so freely you know mm-hmm. uh, using a word like redemption well, like how can a, how can a wolf redeem itself is there a moral code does it have a conscience and how mm-hmm. do you know well there's a famous quote from charles darwin who's a, a pretty good authority <laughs> and uh, I, I use it in one of my books i forget which one but he talks about how there's a con- continuity mm-hmm. of intelligence and emotions and behavior among species, meaning you know it wasn't suddenly that human beings came along and we were the first 
species ever to have true intelligence, true empathy, true compassion, strategy, etc. He says it's a continuum. It, it didn't just start from a spark, a divine spark. And then he used the example of if you watch children playing and then you watch dog puppies playing, they're doing it in exactly the same way. And we, we used examples uh, a few minutes ago. So it's all the same. I, I think the mistake was that um, when anthropomorphism was regarded as the, the mortal sin of uh, wildlife biologists, um, it was because people were terrified of being a, a, accused of saying that animals in any way are like people. And that began to justify really extreme things like vivisection and stuff like that. Well, if they're not intelligent and they don't have emotions, they probably don't even have physical feelings like we do. Like they probably don't even feel pain. And boy, once you get into that area, things can get bad really quickly. It's a nightmare. It's hell. It's hell on earth. So um, there's a, there's a word that you don't really hear it too much, but it's, uh, see if I can pronounce this anthropocentrism. Oh, is that a Jane Goodall word? That's defined, oh, we're the only species on earth that have emotions, intelligence, compassion, and things like that. We're so far superior. So I think that's the the worst thing to fall into. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is wolves and humans are probably the most in, in regards to social behavior, family behavior, the two most similar species on earth. Ooh. Now, maybe dolphins, whales, experts in that could you know, add those species to it. I, I'd have no problem with that. But think of how perfectly a dog fits into a human family. Yes. That's because their ancestors, the wolves, lived in families very much like human families. Mm-hmm. So um, to me, it all makes sense. And that's exactly what I see when I watch wolves. And uh, like in a human family, the, the ones that are going to work best with each other, uh, where all the individuals have, have respect and empathy for others, work together, be respectful, be thoughtful, be sharing. Um, so I, I'll give you a quick example that, that even as psychotic as 40 was, she had limits in life. So there was a, a time where 42 had caught a pronghorn antelope by herself and she was feeding on it. And 42 came along and I was sure she was gonna just yank it away from her sister, but she respected the right of ownership of her sister and she left her alone. So maybe you've had experiences where your own dog or perhaps dogs in the neighborhood, a small dog has a bone or a treat or something like that, a much bigger and stronger dog comes along and, and seems to have an attitude of respect of ownership of a little dog. And so that's one more thing that ironically dogs get from their wolf ancestors. By the way, something that's also fun that sometimes dog owners may not know. So when a, a young wolf, a pup, sees an adult coming home from work, uh, they run to the adult and they want to lick the adult wolf's face. But that's for a specific reason that triggers a regurgitation <laughs> yeah. to bring up the meat that they had just swallowed. So when you come home and your dog wants to lick your face, yeah, okay, that's probably because it he or she likes you <laughs> and greeting, but she's also saying, hey, what did you bring me for food? Yeah, but 
Franz der Wallen, are we smart enough to know how smart animals are? You know, that, yeah. book, that uh -huh. book. Um, uh -huh. He points out that there was a mindset that accorded animals, uh, they are nothing more than blind automata without souls, which is a dangerous um, yeah. attitude to yeah. take. So he said, there's nothing wrong with more complex interpretations. If the species in question has already been proven to have higher intelligence. And I was reading Adam McClosley's book, Dog Behavior, Evolution and Cognition. And he talks about um, if uh, that anthropomorphism may actually be a useful tool. And this made so much sense after reading your book. And when I came upon this line that um, in answering questions about the evolution or function of a behavior, if evolutionary forces have selected for group living, then those creatures might have similar problems to solve that we have. So certain behaviors, uh, cer certain experiences that we have are valid parallels, um, which mm -hmm. is what your book seems to do really well. And it, so it makes sense to use an anthropomorphic stance in order to look for functional similarities, like the great examples of um, a, a 120 pound wolf playing with a 15 pound puppy. Uh, that's exactly what parents do. Uh, sure. For mm -hmm. the same reasons, mm -hmm. you know, to to uh, teach the the dog or, the, or your child uh, how to wrestle, uh, how to develop self-esteem, you know, um, so or to even be reassured as to the status that you have in that big, scary creature's life, that that you're safe with that creature, that they can pretend to beat you up, but they're not really going to. Instead, they're going to protect you. Um, and, and the term he uses, uh, this is McGlossy, he calls it functional anthropomorphism. I was so happy to come upon mm -hmm. that term. Well, let's, let's look at this from a little bit of a different angle. Okay. Um, one thing we haven't talked about is um, the way that, um, or the challenges that any given wolf pack face. So I'm not sure if, we, if I mentioned this yet, but uh, in Yellowstone, where inside the park, no hunting or trapping is allowed, the most common cause of death for an adult wolf is to be killed by other wolves, wow. specifically a rival pack. Um, and then the second most common cause of death, if you're an adult wolf, is to also die violently, but to be killed by a prey animal. Oh. So you're trying to kill a bull elk and the bull elk stabs you in the heart and you're dead. You're trying to kill a 2000 pound bison, the bison tosses you in the air and then tramples you and kills you. So um, they have a pretty high probability of dying violently. Huh. And um, what makes sense to me is when you watch a wolf pack, how well they cooperate as a group, as a pack when they're hunting and when they're fighting another wolf pack. So um, let's just say um, an average pack here is 10 wolves. They're chasing an elk. An average elk is faster than an average wolf. But if they selected an elk that for some reason is a little bit slower than average, what may happen is the fastest wolf in the family, which will probably be a yearling female. She's very sleek. Uh, uh, relatively lightweight. So she'll run forward in front of the pack and her function would be just to grab a hind leg in her jaws. 
And then maybe she's 90 pounds, she's going to act as a drag. That's a very dangerous position for her to be in because the other hind leg has a hoof on it and the elk can smash her right in the, in the nose with it. Mm. So if her sister runs up and grabs the other hind leg, then each sister is, is protecting each other. So now there's maybe um, 180, 190 pounds of drag, and that allows the bigger and stronger but slower wolves to catch up. Could be the alpha female, let's say it's the alpha male. So as the two sisters are holding on as a drag, that enables him to get in front of the elk. He's positioned um, in a situation where now at the right moment, he can leap off the ground grab in his jaws the elk's neck and a big male like that has about 1500 pounds of pressure in his jaw so if he can hang on for two or three minutes she'll be dead at the same time the other wolves will have caught up and they'll be grabbing onto the elk maybe pulling her down help the male once she's on the ground then it's easy for him to maintain a hold so i think one of the first lessons that wolves uh, learn when they go out on serious hunts with the adults is we got to work together on this or none of us are going to survive. We got to work together. And it's even more critical if they're fighting an enemy pack. And what's especially fascinating about that, and I think you really like this, is one of my colleagues here, uh, Kira Cassidy, she's very good at analyzing data. And she found that there's two factors that are very likely to be predictive of who's going to win a battle between two packs. First of all, and it's an obvious point, whoever has the most wolves. But there's another factor that can override that. So you could have a smaller pack defeat an older pack if they have one particular thing going for them. Would you like to guess what that is? No. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you. Okay. <laughs> what, what can override being outnumbered is if your side has more older wolves on your side, more veterans on your side, more old guys, more old girls. Really? So think of uh, in, a, in a true human warfare situation, there's two platoons that meet each other, but one platoon has um, several soldiers that have been through this many times before, and they're not going to run away. They know exactly what to do, even if they're outnumbered then the younger soldiers are going to follow the, the vets. And that's exactly what happens with the wolves too. Hmm. So um, no one, no human can say, you know, how understanding of the younger wolves are of that particular principle. But I think the way that actually works in their mind, if they're scared and they're thinking of run away, that they see their father, their mother, their uncle, their aunt, the older wolves, they're still charging ahead. Mm -hmm. Then, Hey, I think I'm going to do the same thing. They're, they're going to follow that example. So that's a key thing with wolves, respect for your elders and understanding that they know what they're doing and I don't. And so um, I'm going to go along with what they're doing. And that's probably going to work out pretty well for me. All right. So they have learned probably from experience uh, from the time they're tiny that the older yes. wolves uh -huh. uh, sure. They're, they know all the things that you need to know whenever you, you're wondering, where, yes, can, I, where uh -huh. can I find something? Mm -hmm. What should I do in this conflict? Mm 
um, they look to them yeah. and they, they learn uh, social learning. Mm -hmm. They, they learn by example. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. It, maybe, maybe a, a different way that that could work is that um, oftentimes when wolves are on the hunt, they'll be, the whole pack will be chasing maybe 200 elk. It's a very confusing situation. So you're a yearling female and you've picked out a target, but uh, that particular elk easily outruns you. And then in your peripheral vision, you see your mother off to your left, catching up with her elk. So you're smart enough to understand, okay, I didn't pick the right target, but she did. So I'm gonna go over and help her. And after you've gone through a few successful hunts like that, then that principle of, okay, I'm going to try on my own, but if I notice the older wolves are doing something different, I'm going to check that out because they have a pretty good track record of success and I don't. So they've been rewarded for that. But my dogs are crying in the background. Sorry if you, if you can hear that <laughs> whimpering. Um, so learning what, uh, what works and what doesn't is different from learning what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating thing to consider too. Yeah. Um, is it wrong to steal a bone from your sibling? Yeah. Was, um, was it wrong of three out of two to take that food from that pup by pretending to be a pup, by tricking it? I, I, I think maybe a way to sum all this up is that to me, you, you get a sense as you watch the wolves that they have an understanding of the principle of fairness. Mm. And I, I, I think they begin to learn that when they're very young. Um, perhaps a, um, a male pup is bigger than the others is playing too roughly. The, the mother runs over and grabs him by the back and yanks him away and disciplines him. So he kind of gets some sort of understanding that if he does that again, it might not go well for him. Mm -hmm. And then um, perhaps that same large male pup gets into the type of wrestling match that we spoke about with 21. And he understands the concept, well, if you're the bigger, stronger guy and you pretend to lose to the smaller one, it just makes the game, makes the fun last longer. And like people, like especially kids, um, Wolves like to have fun. They like to play. They like they like to play games that last a long time. So the more play, the more fun. So they will like that wolf. Yeah. They mm -hmm. will feel more loyal, yeah. more attracted to. They wouldn't want to play with the, the big strong pup that wins every time because what's the fun with that? So what did 302 have going for him if at first he was not reliable and, and he was he was in a, in wolf <laughs> terms, he was immoral. And yet the girls liked him. Yeah, 302 broke all the rules and he somehow got away with it. And I, I don't I don't have an explanation. What for does that. an independent wolf what do they get out of an, out of independence, out of being alone? Because maybe evolutionarily, um he did have something to offer the gene pool, you know? Sneakiness. <laughs> that can serve you well with when you're trying to steal from bears or uh -huh. Some some other yeah. creature, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. The intelligence was that it? The charm? Yeah, he was a smart wolf. Yeah, yeah, he could get away with so much. So <laughs> during the mating season, uh, he would leave his pack, the Druid pack, once he joined it, and just go into all these other wolf territories and romance their females, and then come home. Now sometimes he would have bites and limps and things like that, but. 
he had s- some sort of a technique of getting away with that. Now, maybe what he would do is have the females run to him and he would avoid the big males in the family. I, I think he was smart enough to figure out how to do that. Mm. But um, he got away with a lot of stuff. He did. But then at the end, uh, in the very end of his story, which is so touching, um, you know, he he had become, as we were saying, a very attentive mate uh, and father. Um, I don't want to spoil the book. I think everyone should go out and buy it. Actually, the whole series from your local bookstores right now. Um, it's the redemption of Wolf 302. But can you tell us a little bit, uh, like, what are you willing to tell us about uh, how his story ends? Well, I, I love to go into all the details, but I, I, I imagine myself as a reader, I think that would really spoil the, yes. um, the surprise ending. So what I can say is, as a very old wolf, 302 was declining in health, and he was having trouble keeping up with the pack. He would be the last one in line, having to stop and rest, and would join them when they waited for him. And um, during that period, he, he gradually ended up essentially running the, the daycare center for the pups while the younger and stronger and more vigorous adults, they went on and hunt, on hunts. So he's spending a lot of time with his pups that last year of his life. And when we realized that he had died and we went to the site and examined what happened, what I can say is we were able to establish that he had died in a very, very heroic way. A way in which I can say that he sacrificed himself for his family. And even me trying to say that right now, I'm getting emotional about yeah. it because it was such a, an emotional ending to his life. A, a wolf that perhaps you could say was so selfish during the vast majority of his years had changed so much at the very end that um, he earned a right to be considered one of Yellowstone's greatest wolves of all time, up there with 21 and eight and so many others. So he fulfilled his responsibility as a father wolf, as an alpha male. That responsibility is at all costs, protect your family. He accomplished that. It cost him his life, but his pup survived. In the book, you tell that story so beautifully with with such empathy. You know, you uh, you really seem to place yourself. Uh, you, you consider what what must have mattered to him and um, what he must have been feeling, and and the other wolves too. At that time, it's really yes, powerful. Mm-hmm. It's really powerfully told. Well, three hundred two. I, I think the the real theme of his life, as far as humans are in the sense of, of him is that he was so relatable. Yes. Um, he certainly, like all of us, had his share of faults and failings and mistakes and everything. And um, But he worked through that. And at the very end of his life, really came through for his family. So I, I mentioned the story of the prodigal son. Um, you know, that could have been a subtitle of the 302 book, 302, The, the Prodigal Son. He uh, proved himself to be one of our greatest heroes in the end. 
Yeah, he he rose to all the challenges and responsibilities. Oh, Rick, this is so much fun. I, <laughs> um, I've always loved wolves, uh, even as a little girl. I think uh, I think I told you when we met before um, that a lot of little girls are horse horse crazy, but then there are some of us yeah. who are dog mm -hmm. crazy, and we read all mm -hmm. the books about dogs and yes, and uh, mm -hmm. we read all the Jack London books. And that was me. So th this has been such a thrill to talk with you, a, a real honor. Thank oh, you happy so much. To do it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're a good interviewer. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It, it, was, uh, it was very fun. Um, my border collies are right outside the store. I don't know if you could hear them. They're, they're bored and they're complaining. Uh, yes, I've been hearing some background. <laughs> yeah. Are they, are they girl wolves, like girl dogs? Let me see who will come in. Oh, well, let's see. It'll, of course, be Maisie. Here she comes. This is my little yeah, bitch. Yeah, boy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. And Mick is going to, he, he's right here. He's the, he's the more wolfish in, in a sense. There he is. Oh, okay. He's very handsome. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. How do you think that your female would react if she had met 302? I know she would have taken to him immediately. Uh, your book has helped me yeah. understand them so much better. Um, okay. You know, well, mm -hmm. I'm sure anybody reading your books is, is thinking about how would my dog look, what, you know, who, who in this story is, is my dog most like, yeah. you know, and mm -hmm. um, Maisie mm -hmm. is fiercely loyal. I have no question that, um, that she would, she would give her life for me. If, if I was in danger, she's sure. anytime mm -hmm. she thinks sure. there's any threat, she is cutting in between us and, and saying uh, yes. you two back mm -hmm. off. No, don't fight. Be nice to each other. Um, if some, like right no. now she's mm -hmm. worried that I'm going to get mad at him for the annoying little sounds oh. he's making. So she, <laughs> <Huh>. she, <laughs> she's getting excited. Yeah. She, she's, tr <laughs> she's trying to appease me. So she uh -huh. has, she just absorbs yeah. all the uh -huh. emotion and then she tries to manage it. She tries to keep everybody on an equilibrium. I see. Yeah. Is it, she does all this emotional work. Um, yeah. Maintain, trying to main, um, maintain family harmony, group harmony. I see. Yeah. Pack harmony. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's just all in. Well, if you just go back a certain number of generations, all of her ancestors would have been Wolf 21 and Wolf 42. And so that's where yes. all that comes from. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's what's so another thing that is so fascinating about the book is it helps us understand mm -hmm. our own dogs and, uh, and where they're coming from. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, they're also creatures of habit. I don't know if wolves have a schedule where they do think the same things the same time. Um, but it, it's dinner time here. <laughs> I think border collies or, and maybe other herding dogs might be a little closer because of the uh, cooperative hunting. They, they still have yeah. that. At, uh -huh. at least the work stock dogs, working stock dogs, yeah. have that uh -huh. cooperative hunting intelligence yeah. intact. Uh -huh. That's what they've been bred uh -huh. for. Well, uh, it's interesting you say that, that likely... Um, Certainly in uh, northern North America and Siberia and um, Scandinavian parts of the world, that probably um, the very first few generations of um, 
of what people were turning, um, when they were turning wolves into dogs, they were being used to pull sleds. And so that's a, it really fit in well with the um, genetic history of wolves in the sense of working together for a common cause, going out on a hunt together, working together to, to uh, battle a rival pack. Or yeah. if you have a bunch of boardy callers that are working together to, to get a herd of sheep or whatever, to go the certain way, the, uh, as they cooperate and in, in working together to get that done it's kind of the same thing with walls so um they have to be not able not only to read each other but they have to read their prey animal too yes yeah, so it, it probably wasn't too difficult to take um wild-born wolf pups uh raise them in a human village get, get them um uh, socialized to people and then the as the wolves were growing up um like your dogs they would want to be helpful they want to would want to be part of the group want to be part of what was happening uh you know certainly going out in mm. hunts that would uh, perfectly fit into that we talked about the example of pulling a sled if mm-hmm. a rival um tribe of humans attacked your village um the, the dog the the wolf dogs would want to protect their human friends so um, there's really not a whole lot of difference between being a member of a wolf pack and wanting to be part of your group and wanting to be helpful to your group and uh, being yeah. a dog in a human village or a dog in someone's home, that a lot of all that behavior is pretty much the same stuff. I want to be part yeah. of the group. I, I want to be friends with these uh, companions. Uh, I want to help them. I want to protect them. So it's a pretty good fit. A way to sum that up is that a way to sum it up is that there's no two species on earth that are so similar in social behavior as wolves and humans. And then you include dogs in that as well. Thank you so much for all the great conversation. Okay. Well, you're a good interviewer. You made it easy. You're a good conversationalist. Thank you very much. So are you. After we met before, I was really looking forward to this. You're a great storyteller. Okay. You should be on TV. <laughs> you could you could replace Oprah. Oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. That Wow. That, that, was, that was like the best Christmas present. <laughs> if you want to learn more, you'll find links to everything Rick and I referenced in our show notes and on our website, thisanimallife.com. A huge heartfelt thanks to all of you who gave me your time, support, and great animal nerd conversation. Our graphic artist is Sarah K. Martin. Our podcast theme composer is Chip Salerno. If you like this episode, please subscribe to This Animal Life on your favorite podcast provider and share it with a friend who loves animals as much as you do. Perhaps we'll do another season. I have really enjoyed geeking out and loving animals with you. And I'm not going anywhere. I'm just devoting more time to my dogs making Maisie and to writing about animals. So stay tuned and stay in touch. And enjoy your animal life. <laughs>